it's a little bit different than in the States where it's a lot more foreigners that are around or people from a mixed, you know, mixed background. So it just takes time to develop, I guess, mutual respect. But if you do your job well, and if you do your job properly, I think you have to be recognized, right? Have you ever wondered what it's like covering sports in another country? That's what this week's guest has done, becoming a beat reporter for a large Japanese daily. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Edo Devon is a sports correspondent for Japan Forward. He's also the author of a new ebook about legendary sports columnist Jerry Eisenberg entitled Going 15 Rounds with Jerry Eisenberg, a collection of interviews with a legendary columnist. Welcome to the podcast, Ed. Thank you very much for having me. It's an honor to be on your program. Oh, thank you very much. Now, I'm always looking for interesting people doing interesting things. When I found out there was a journalist, a sports journalist in Japan, that certainly got me curious, but then also the fact that you'd written an ebook. I was also uh, wanted to find out more about that. So tell me a little bit about your journalistic background. How did you end up in, in Japan writing for Japan Forward? I'll try to give you the abridged version. I was born in New York, New York City, grew up in New Jersey, and moved to Arizona in the summer before my sophomore year of high school and began working in high school as a high school radio correspondent for high school football games my junior and senior years and studied journalism in community college and at Arizona State University. Worked at the ASU student newspaper and before that at the Pima Community College weekly paper and kind of worked my way up in the profession. Did a postgraduate reporting internship at the Birmingham News in Alabama, actually. Came back to Arizona, worked at the Tucson newspaper, the Daily Star, Arizona Daily Star, and as a sports editor up in uh, Flagstaff at the Arizona Daily Sun. So I had a, var- a variety of different jobs in the in the local media. It was kind of a goal of mine to you know work for a larger outfit where the potential of covering national events and maybe the Olympics, some of these kind of events would be on the on the horizon. And Flagstaff was a very small newspaper, the Arizona Daily Sun, and it really wasn't a realistic option to, you know, go to the Super Bowl or go to the World Series or, um, you know, get, even get credential for the Olympics. So in 2006, I graduated in 1999, so about seven years after graduating, there was an opening advertised through the uh, Associated Press Sports Editor's website for a basketball reporter at the Japan Times. And the interesting thing about it was the Japan Times was covering a professional league that had just started in 2005. It was called the BJ League, Basketball Japan League. And it was based on the model of the NBA where teams would be built and owned by, you know, franchise format. Whereas in before the, the rival corporate league were basically divisions of companies like Toyota and Mitsubishi that were used as just like a, promotional vehicle for the company. And I had applied for the position of basketball reporter. I was interviewed for the job on the telephone and I was offered a position to, to be the reporter covering the pro basketball league, to be a desk editor on the Japan Times sports desk. And the reason that the hiring was at that time was the pro league was very new. And also the world basketball championship was held in Japan in 2006. So I was kind of the lead writer for the the coverage of the world basketball coverage. You know, how is sports reporting in Japan different than in the United States, or is it? Hmm, interesting question. <laughs> well, 
Are you old enough to remember what is called the National Sports Daily? Have you heard of that in your in your background? Yes. Okay. There was basically one national experiment with the national uh, sports publication, right? That was done in the print form. Well, Japan has has five national sports newspapers in Japanese, and they've been around for decades. So there is a very a robust sports media field in Japanese, along with the national newspapers. So it's a very competitive field. There's a lot of information out there. People often get the paper in the morning and then get another paper in, in the evening, especially the older generation. So people read a lot and people are taking the train and there's more time to read than you might think of like a typical, I don't know what, what is a typical American? There's all different aspects of the way people get to work and how they use their time. But in a small country, very crowded country, the train is a lot more common for getting around. So it leads to, I guess, more time for reading sports media. However, it has evolved like around the world, you know, where the internet and social media and smartphones are also um, taking the place of the print product. So I guess it's hard to say how the profession will be in 10 or 20 years from now. So do you write in English or Japanese? I do write in English. My previous job, which I held for almost 14 years, was at the Japan Times through the end of March. That's a national English daily that was founded in the 1890s. So that's a long history, that newspaper. That's an English print newspaper every day. And Japan Forward is an English website that was established in 2017 by a company called Sankei Shinbun. The word Shinbun means newspaper in Japanese. And Sankei Shinbun is kind of like Wall Street Journal. It's a very well-established, conservative, economic, financial newspaper. So who are your readers, the sports readers? Are the, the, you know, the people who are interested in the, the people pick up the paper primarily for the, the sort of financial approach and then there just happens to be a sports section with it? That's true, but I'm writing for the website Japan Forward, which is a separate operation from the Sankei. It was established by Sankei Shinbun, but the website is, I think you could say probably 50% of the audience is in Japan. And then there's a lot of, there's a growing audience overseas. And some of the stories I've written have helped us increase our overseas audience in North America. But we, we also have a large audience, interestingly enough, in the Philippines and in India and in Taiwan, I think more for the Pan-Asia coverage. Mm -hmm. Do you have a particular beat on the sports desk or you just sort of cover a variety of sports? I'm more of a generalist these days. So I started at the job in the 1st of May and I write a weekly column. It's kind of a playoff on my name, the way it appears in, you know, in English letters, odds and evens. And I do a weekly Japan sports notebook, which highlights a variety of things in the Sunday paper and the Sunday website. A couple of weeks ago, I focused on Shohei Otani of the Angels, kind of analyzing his batting struggles this year as compared to previous years. But I also focus on athletes and teams in Japan. So it's kind of a combination of uh, domestic Japanese sports and overseas uh, what's going on. Like with the Indy 500 a couple weeks ago, I focused on the Japanese winner, Sato, and wrote a column afterward as a follow-up to the actual race coverage. Do you have any particular challenges? I mean, I assume at this point that you're fluid in Japanese? Yes. Um, I'm not the best, but I improved uh, steadily over the years. And I do a lot of my interviews in Japanese, but I also um, 
sometimes the athletes actually and the coaches want to challenge themselves and do more basic English interviews. Cool. So are, are there any particular challenges you face being an American covering Japanese sports? I guess there might be a perception like that a foreigner might not follow the rules. Like there might be kind of a, a prejudice based on just not knowing somebody. Once a team or a, a coach or a PR director gets to know you and they kind of see the depth of your work and maybe the earnestness that you put forward, the effort you put forward. I think that you, once you develop a rapport, I think it helps in Japan. It's a, it's a, I would say like 95% of the, you know, the population is Japanese. So it's a little bit different than in the States where it's a lot more foreigners that are around or people from a mixed, you know, mixed background. So it just takes time to develop, I guess, mutual respect. But if you do your job well, and if you do your job properly, I think you have to be recognized, right? And you have to be known who you are. Yeah. Yeah. If they see your work and they, they see that you're working hard, they probably are willing to help and work with you. Are there any particular types of stories you like doing or particular sports that you prefer covering over others? You know, I like the challenge of doing a lot of different things. At the Japan Times, I was the basketball beat reporter for for 14 seasons from 2006 until the 2019-2020 season that was that was canceled several months into the season. So I chronicled the league that was the old league that was growing exponentially for more than a decade. So all these new teams and coaches, players, cities that developed the basketball culture, I was sort of at the forefront of covering that in the English language. A lot of people from the States, for example, learned about a star player from college who came to Japan and they followed that team or they learned about the rivalries of uh, certain certain teams. So that was kind of a big thing for me was the continuity of coverage. And I did the roundups of games for, I'm still doing them now. I've done them, you know, for a decade and a half because the wire, the newswire AP or Kyoto news, which is a Japanese agency, they don't write the daily roundup of games. Like you might see AP do for MLB or NFL. So I've had to kind of stay on top of who's doing what, who's, uh, you know, monitoring the stats knowing the names of the players. And that's helped me develop a stronger um, knowledge of the league, the BJ league. And since 2016, there was a merger of the old league and the JBL, which is the corporate league. The new league is called the B league. It's backed by FIBA now, you know, international basketball federation. So the BJ league did not have recognition from the international basketball federation based on the national bylaws of having two top leagues in the same country. So Japan was kind of a pariah there for a while. And actually with Japan Basketball Association was suspended by FIBA until it basically forcing a merger. So how did COVID affect, you know, the ability of the teams to play, but also you as a sports journalist covering sports that were affected by COVID? Late last February, this February is still the same year. It seems like it's been going on forever, right? Yeah, um, it's this, uh, this year is not going to end. <laughs> I might be mixing up my dates here. It kind of runs together for me, but I think it was the last week of February. It might have been the first week of March where I'm forgetting exactly precisely. But the league, with the cases, you know, rising increasingly in Wuhan and China, I think Japan was kind of being extra cautious and 
there was a few cases in Japan, but nothing like the States, fortunately. And the league went on hold for a couple of weeks. And then they started playing again. And then there were a couple of people that were that got infected that tested positive. And then they a couple of people on teams, a couple of players, and the league then canceled the season. So it was kind of start, stop, start again, cancel. And the playoffs never happened. And it's a 60-game season, and they got through two-thirds of it. Wow. Correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe this is – I'm misremembering it. Japan has the Olympics coming up, right? Yes. To really refresh your memory, it was supposed to be this summer, 2020. And the IOC, in my opinion, it seemed like it took forever to make an announcement that you know, it had to be canceled or postponed. Postponed is the more accurate word for this year. Because you had all these different things around the world being postponed, or but yeah. So optimistically, the IOC and the 2020 organizers and the Japanese government are trying to forge ahead for next year. I don't think anybody really knows about next year, though. Do you agree? Yeah. No. I certainly, from where I'm sitting, nobody seems to know what's going on or, or what we can expect. The general consensus is if. Unless there's some sort of vaccine, things are, are going to be sort of lumbering forward like we are are now. But we talked a lot about your beat and you know covering sports in Japan. Let's talk about this book that you've written about Jerry Eisenberg. Uh, how did you meet Jerry? I guess I guess growing up in New Jersey kind of helped just to be aware of who he was because I liked reading. I liked newspapers as a kid, and he was in the newspaper all the time. So. I was aware of him a little bit. And then as I got older, you know, like my uncle would send me like, you know, clips from the, like the Super Bowl or, you know, cut out different stories about the Yankees. And I saw him more and more. And if I would visit back East, you know, as in my teenage years, early, early college years, I got to see him, you know, I was more aware of him as I started studying journalism. And I just thought he was really good. And with the advent of the internet, I also, basically read him whenever there was a big fight week, whenever there was a Super Bowl or the Triple Crown races. You know, he was always covering the big events and uh, just a great storyteller. So this was just a way of, of putting him on my radar in my brain that this guy is really good. He's interesting. He might have a different approach from these guys screaming like on these different debate shows or, you know, like a, a talk radio guy just trying to have a take. He had a nuanced argument in his columns. He had great research. He was a great storyteller. He knew everything going back to like the 1920s. To me, he was just an intriguing person. I've never met him face to face. Maybe you believe that. Maybe you don't. The concept of the book. But um, I, I, did, I started doing a, a WordPress blog site. I think it was 2013. And I started reaching out to people occasionally for interviews by email or by by telephone just to kind of find out about their careers maybe to promote their work a little bit and in 2015 after i did several of these kind of um like q and a's i actually reached out to him with that kind of concept maybe thinking i can do a story from for the blog site and maybe i can pitch it to a magazine or a website or a newspaper and maybe they'll publish it and I actually reached out to several and just got rejected or, you know, like, no, thanks. We don't have the budget or it's not quite our market. But Jerry agreed to an interview with me in late 2014. And then maybe six months passed. And uh, we, then we finally spoke and we spoke for roughly 
roughly, I think, almost three hours. So the basis of that conversation is the bulk of part one of the book that I wrote, but we also did some follow-up short interviews and some follow-up email over the ne next few years that really kind of um, flushed out some topics and enhanced some of the questions I had. So you found out about him, you were aware of him growing up, obviously you were a fan of his writing, and then when you became a journalist, you began to sort of appreciate him as a storyteller. And what did you learn, or what, what insights did you have in interviewing him? To me, what was interesting in, in a way was, there's the great newspaper rivalry among the city papers, more so when the economy of media was a bit better, a lot better, like New York Post, New York Daily News, Newsday, the New York Times, those are kind of like in the fight for getting scoops, getting circulation sales, getting eyeballs. But the New Jersey, the Newark Star-Ledger is so close in the market, but it's kind of in and of itself as well because it's, it's a statewide newspaper. And Jerry would cover the big stories from the Yankees, the Giants, the Knicks, but also, you know, like the racetrack, uh, Monmouth or fights in Atlantic City or Rutgers University, Seton Hall University. He also kind of had, you know, the pulse on those other things that that really the New York papers did not quite have the gravitas with. Well, that's cool. And it's great that you got a chance to talk to him and interview him over a period of time. Was there anything, any particular part of the interviews that you found particularly meaningful to you? Honestly, I would say start to finish. His generosity and his appreciation for, I think, someone asking him about his career and his life, he kind of uh, takes a sarcastic approach, like you could have picked a more interesting topic or a more interesting person. But I think he generally appreciates someone having interest in him and what he's seen and done. The reason I chose, for example, the photograph that he actually provided and suggested for one of the photos of Muhammad Ali was they were great friends. And the history of his career or his childhood goes back to, you know, when Babe Ruth was still playing. It really spans almost a century. And his father was an immigrant from the Russian-Poland border. And uh, his father was a semi-pro amateur baseball player, too, and really passed on his love of baseball to Jerry. So some of the old stories about the New York Giants and really going back to those days when Babe Ruth was still playing, I didn't touch upon them a lot in the book. But it's fascinating to have someone with a, you know, a firsthand history and knowledge of that time. Again, you, you, this is somebody you grew up with and you'd sort of come to admire and you get the chance to interview him. As a journalist, what's the takeaway from talking to somebody like that? You know, you looking at your career after having spoken to him. Let me think about that for a second. I admire the sustained excellence of his coverage and the desire to keep working. I think retirement is good for some people and certain types of jobs, maybe like a construction worker or, you know, a bricklayer, you're not going to find people that are 85 doing those jobs, normally speaking, right? But a writer or someone with a, an artistic type of job, I kind of find myself, you know, admiring people like Paul McCartney who are still, you know, making albums or, you know, painters that still want to get up every day and, you know, try to make a masterpiece. He's semi-retired, but he just published his first novel at age 90. It's going to be released any day now. So to me, that is impressive. And his streak of Super Bowls, consecutive Super Bowls that he attended, ended this year. 
he went to the first 53 Super Bowls. And of the newspaper columnists who were employed from day one, only Jerry Green of the Detroit News, who I interviewed for the book, and Jerry Eisenberg had attended all 53. And this year, Jerry Green went. So he's now the lone person who has worked for newspapers for 54 years to go to all Super Bowls. Jerry actually covered the Super Bowl from Vegas, where he he lives in Henderson, Nevada, just outside of Vegas now. He wrote stories leading up to the Super Bowl and went to the went to a local casino actually and uh, and watched it from there and wrote about it actually as well. But due to issues with walking and just the uh, getting from the media bus through the crowd, he's having a bit trouble walking long distances and decided this year to take it easy instead. You know, I would imagine that you know as a storyteller, you probably welcome to the opportunity of, you know, this is a, a new, exp- you know, the Super Bowl as a new experience that he's not there in person, but he's, he's viewing it from a distance and, you know, seeing it from a different way. There, there's that different experience. So how can you, know, this is an ebook. How can people get your book? I did a little research and I heard kind of the simplicity of, of preparing the book through a company called Draft2 Digital, which is an online platform. And basically, I created a Word file with with a few photos, and then the book gets formatted through that company's technology. And Barnes & Noble, Apple Books, there's a company called Scribd, S-C-R-I-B-D. There's a website in France that actually has it on its online store. Rakuten Kobo is a site in Japan that carries it. The book is an anecdotal biography in part one where I interview him on several different topics about Muhammad Ali, about his newspaper career, about baseball memories, about how he was a a jazz musician in Harlem and uh, New York in the early, in the late 1940s, and how his failure as a musician and the way he like studied music kind of affected his writing, how he saw the rhythm in the rhythm of music, you know, the space between notes, that kind of affected how he writes. I talked to him about that. I talked to him about a number of things, about Grambling and Eddie Robinson. And yes, he wrote about these things in his own writings, but I want to kind of a fresh take and just me delivering the questions to him. So that was kind of my approach for part one. Originally, I just had an idea of part one of a book. And then I'll, I'll mention briefly, if time permits, I did a part two of the book, which is probably 25% of the actual word count maybe 30%. I have to break it down. But I interviewed close to 40 people, including a few people that passed away. Some of them were his contemporaries. Other people are very prominent in sports media today. I'll give you some names here, uh, if I may, Michael. Uh, Dave Anderson was a longtime columnist in the New York Times, Pulitzer Prize winner. I interviewed Dave Anderson. Dave Kindred, I mentioned about Ali. Well, Ali and Jerry and Dave Kindred were very close, the three of them. And Jerry Green, I mentioned earlier. Are you aware of Ira Burkow of the New York Times? He also won a Pulitzer Prize and the Red Smith Award. So I interviewed several Red Smith Award winners, which is basically the the highest award that a sports writer can get from a sports fraternity in the United States. George Solomon, the former Washington Post sports editor, his comments are in part two. Tom Verducci of Sports Illustrated, a great baseball writer. Bob Papa. New York Giants uh, play-by-play announcer. I tried to reach out to several people who know him or know of him on the periphery. Jeremy Schapp, who's a 
the son of Dick Schaap. Both of them are very prominent in, in sports media. Jeremy hosts a show on ESPN Radio and does the E60 documentaries. There's a separate chapter with Jeremy Schaap, along with Dave Anderson, and a lot of these guys. So I, I think I wanted to kind of give, give people a chance to reflect on his legacy, share favorite stories, tell me what they think his um, impact for them was or what impact for readers. So it sounds like a really kind of fascinating book and a fascinating take on on somebody who, who clearly had an an impact on on sports writing and, and sports reporting. So now that you've written the book and published it, what's left or what's on the horizon for you? I think it's probably a better way to say it. In the near future, I'm trying to promote this ebook through programs like yours. I hope to kind of research the budget for what it might cost to self-publish a paperback or find a find a company that might like to, you know, have an interest in this book. I sort of wanted, maybe this was selfish in my thinking, but I sort of wanted editorial control over the content where I kind of had a vision for what the book might be. And I didn't necessarily want interference, like cut this out, cut this out, cut this out. I viewed it kind of as a project that might be something that sports fans might be interested in, people that are interested in media in general, and also maybe the target of a third audience journalism students and maybe journalism uh, professors or like student media advisors. I've been talking to Ed O'Devon, a sports correspondent with Japan Forward, about his new book, Going 15 Rounds with Jerry Eisenberg, a collection of interviews with the legendary columnist. Ed, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. And um, one last point about you asked me what's on the horizon. I'm just trying to grow into my role at my new job as best as I can. I've only been with Japan Forward since May. And I'm trying to just provide the best best coverage I can under challenging times. Things are very fluid. And I've been to the Olympics twice in person, Beijing and London. And I don't quite know how I would do differently with the website coverage compared to a newspaper. So that's kind of, I guess, wait and see. But I'm trying to provide unique, original content and just, you know, help make an impact with a new company. I assume if it's if it's going to take place in, in Japan, then there's a good chance that you may be able to cover some of it with a very short commute, if nothing else. You're going to save on travel cost. That would be true, yeah. <laughs> and lodging. So yeah. You, so you got that going for you, which is a plus. Ed, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. I, I really appreciate it. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Emilia Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.